Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here as well. And we want to thank everybody who's been listening. Always grateful. Love it if you would give us a nice five-star review. We deserve it. And always welcome to give us any kind of feedback or criticism. We can take it like a champ. And we hope to get better and better every time we do one of these episodes. MurdochPodcast.com or the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page to find out more, to reach out to us. Coming up later in the program, we're going to discuss a pending lawsuit against Parker and Parker's convenience store by the Beach family. Of course, Mallory Beach killed in a boating accident, and Parker's is where Paul Murdoch and the kids bought their alcohol. There's also some very strong accusations against a media outlet which we will deal with too. That is coming up in a little bit. But first, set us up with our guest, Seton. We are so excited to have Suzanne Lynch. She is a professor of practice and economic crimes, director of financial crimes programs at Utica College School of Business and Justice Studies. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Let's start it off because Alec Murdoch's charged with money laundering. What is money laundering? Explain the basic concept here. So money laundering in its most basic form is pretty much hide the proceeds of criminal activity. This could include criminal activity such as drug trafficking, human trafficking, any type of fraud. Money laundering is really the um, connected as a part of, I should say, a bigger crime. So when there's any money involved, How do I make it clean to run it through the banking system without raising suspicion? Can you go over a little bit of the history of money laundering? I found it fascinating when I was reading about it. Right. So 1970, the Bank Secrecy Act was enacted by Congress. The primary reason for that at the time was to try and capture, you know, narcotics trafficking. So people buying drugs, because that was the ultimate focus of especially federal law enforcement at the time. The banking system wasn't sophisticated, so people were really just paying cash. But once you had that cash, you had to you know, deposit it. You didn't want to walk around with thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of cash. So the Bank Secrecy Act was enacted initially to combat and be able to identify the proceeds of originally the Mexican cartels and all that. So that's where it started. Banks had requirements to file reports with the federal government. And when I say banks, financial institutions. So banks were put on notice, financial institutions, on how to identify suspicious activity. Since the Bank Secrecy Act in 1970, there's been significant enhancements over the years. And so one of those that really put a lot of regulatory statutes is the U.S. Patriot Act, enacted after 9-11. So the Patriot Act kind of put the Bank Secrecy Act, I like to say, on steroids, banks being able to identify suspicious activity, whether it was from drug trafficking, whether it was from terrorist financing, all sorts of different types of identification to see money moving through the, the financial systems, both here in the U.S. and outside the U.S. 
Do you have any idea? Do they have an estimate how much money is laundered in a year? Do they even fathom a guess? Really, one of the best resources for everyone is the U.S. Treasury um, has a group that specifically focuses on that. It's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, commonly referred to as FinCEN.gov. The estimates, I really don't have anything right offhand, but it really is in the billions of dollars. I read that money laundering, it's like a three or three stages right. of laundering right. money. What are, what are those? So the, the three stages are the placement, the placement of the money into the banking system, the layering, which is putting it maybe in different banks, different bank accounts, and then the integration. The integration is, can be the most challenging. So, because ultimately that's the goal. You want to make it that money from the proceeds of crime look legitimate. So, and how, how is that done? I'm going to maybe put a down payment on a house. I'm going to pay bills, buy a car or a boat, a number of different things. But then you cleanse the money and put it back in looking legitimate into the financial system. So you mentioned suspicious activities. So I was kind of wondering how banks identify suspicious activity and what reporting is required. Typically, it's a um, system or software that identifies what we like to call unusual behavior in accounts, right? So that could be, and this is no different. Just think about something like your credit card. Have you ever gotten a call, right, from your credit card company? Hey, did you really make this purchase in London when you're living in South Carolina? These are systems that monitor for unusual behavior on a customer's account. So think of something probably better, like one of my students, they have their student checking account, and all of a sudden they're putting in thousands of dollars, um, which as we all know, even going back to our college days, thousands of dollars is not really, quote, maybe logical for uh, a student account, right? So we're looking at the types of accounts, the type of funding, the types of deposits, and the types of withdrawals, whether it's an electronic, you know, bank to bank transfer, you're writing a check. All of these transactions are part of monitoring systems that banks and financial institutions um, need to review. So if there's unusual activity, we call them call them an alert. So something will, may pop up in a bank's detection software, and it's up to, that's when the human looks at it, um, that kind of thing. So that's pretty standard. Like I said, federal regulators, state regulators, because I'm talking federal in general, but most states also have their own money laundering acts as well. So in this case, South Carolina has a money laundering, which is what the indictment they were charged with. The unusual movement of money, is it logical? You know, what's normal behavior for that account? And what made maybe multiple transactions in a short period of time? What made, um, you know, this large deposit that, that wasn't occurring before? And or looking at um, banks have significant responsibilities for what we call know your customer, KYC. So do you know, you know, it's your customer, do you know all about them? Is that money movement logical for that kind of business? So again, I could talk, you know, all the different types of detection strategies. And those are probably some of the, the high level ones. Is that the one, is that basically the thing we hear about don't move 
more than 10,000. Like that's one of the things, right? Right. Stay, right. Stay under 10 grand. From the charges, it's saying that most of the charges they had were less than 10,000. Like most so, of cashier's checks. Yeah, the cashier's checks, less than 10,000, right. I guess not to raise red flags. But if you're having less than 10,000, every couple of days, that seems like that could also raise some red flags. Well, and we would call that a clue, right? Um, as far as <laughs> this yeah. is unusual behavior. Um, and, and you're right. So a lot of, how shall I say, potential money launderers will think if they go below that $10,000 threshold, that they will, um, you know, not be part of the requirements that the bank does have for reporting. However, again, the technology is sophisticated enough to look for patterns um, in banking, or it should be sophisticated enough to do that, right? I'd have a question, a follow-up type thing. Does it make a difference with red flags? I guess it's still the same thing. You're looking for a pattern. Right. If it's a business account or it's a personal account, do they look at one more than the other? Is there something that comes into play in that instance? Well, well, there could be because just getting back to calling, you know, when people try to do the under $10,000 threshold, um, we call that structuring, right? You're trying to structure transactions to think you're hiding that movement of money, all right? And structuring is also a crime um, under some of the money laundering statutes, right? Because it's showing that that's what you're doing. You're trying to hide the money. So it actually helps prove the intent more. You know, when you're asking about the red flags, would there be different profiles of, like I said, a student checking account versus a business account? Absolutely. The technology is geared towards those types. So I would set my detection strategies differently for the student account than I would for a business account. So in the 80s, they enacted new legislation where the government was allowed to confiscate property and the burden shifted to the owner of the property to prove that it came from legitimate means cars or boats, whatever it be. Asset that you, forfeiture, is that what right, that you got it, that's that you correct. got it by legal means. Correct. This is something that could potentially impact some of the things owned by Alec Murdoch. They seem to be outside of his normal salary. So that that's what they're looking for, right? It's, so the asset forfeiture, they can take it before they even prove the case. Well, yeah, asset forfeiture. And, and again, you know, when we look at the enhanced legislation from 1970 through the 80s, because again, that's when everybody had the aha. Oh, well, if they bought things, that should go, you know, we can... We can prove that it's the result of the proceeds of crime. Then guess what? You know, you see the guys on YouTube, you know, standing with their gold jewelry or their Maserati that they bought, mm-hmm. and law enforcement loves that because it's like, oh, that car could be mine, right? Because <laughs> if we can prove that you purchased with the proceeds, whether you know the cash, and obviously it, there's a, there's a lot of financial analysis that goes through that, right. but yes, asset forfeiture is a key uh, result. Um, And it's also a key part because you could go to jail and um, we're going to take everything that we can prove was bought with the proceeds of crime. And that's a little different state to state. There's the federal thing, but there's also state to state, right? An asset forfeiture. The the state, you know, different states may not have an, uh, and I'm not, you know, hundred percent on South Carolina law, you know, speaking broadly. Yes. There may be asset forfeiture as a part of state law as well. 
We actually talked about this in an early episode when we interviewed the author of Jackpot, Jason Ryan, and he talked about the war against drugs in South Carolina during the 80s. Reagan did it, cranked it up. That's how they started really busting a bunch of people in the 80s when they, yes. when they started going after boats and cars. and. Yes, yes. As we found out, I always like to say, we put up, we build a 10-foot wall, we think we got it, and then we have to build the 11-foot the ladder when <laughs> the bad guys figure out you know, their next steps. So that's why it's been so enhanced over the years. The know your customer requirement, that puts the onus on the bank or institution to catch it. And if they don't, then they can be problematic for them. Correct. Correct. So financial services policies and procedures are the result of um, state, federal laws, whether it's the Federal Reserve, everybody's got regulators, right, from the federal to the state. So those are all um, part of what banks must do when what we call onboarding, bringing on a new customer. Who are they? Their driver's license. What's their business? And one of the key things, too, is what is the average, you know, let's say deposits that you think you'll be doing in a month, as an example, right? Right. So then you monitor those kinds of thresholds. Is this a logical dollar amount or deposit amount or withdrawal amounts for this type of business, as an example? They're just running your basic statistics and algorithms on on the average, and then they're supposed to call it out when they see Mm -hmm. it. And I would imagine it's pretty tight right now. I would think that any major bank, it's pretty hard to pull a money laundering scheme. Would you agree? Well, I I think in general, the the larger um, the financial institution, they're far more sophisticated um, technology that they do use. I know I've, you know, I've worked with many banks and setting up detection strategies and things like that. Um, And also work for mid-sized, you know, banks as well. Smaller banks, again, you know, it's an investment um, you know, into these kinds of things. I always tell my students and, you know, fraud, money laundering, we're the necessary evil because we're the ones that don't bring in a lot of money. Um, but we have to kind of enforce the policies and procedures that the regulators set up, depending on their level of sophistication. And right with all technology, you still need a human um, to be able to look at it, analyze it, and say, hey, yeah, is this a legitimate suspicious that I need to do more investigation on? So it's dependent. It's situational sometimes, depending on the financial institution, their asset size, their locations. Obviously, a Chase bank would have far different and more sophisticated because they're located in so many parts of the country. And they have different detection strategies or models that they use for, for instance, their small business lending. It really probably the easiest way to say it's situational. So I do have one more. This is kind of just my own crazy question. Um, I loved Ozark. So what did you think of that? <laughs> the money so is, is that realistic? I, I was, uh, listen, I use Ozark um, in my classes. I show the clips. Oh, really? Uh, there's some great shows now. I, I think it's so nice that finally money laundering is coming into all the shows, right? Um, yeah. No, Ozark <laughs> right. and Breaking Bad. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a few more out there. Why listen to me talk? I just show Ozarks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether it's hiding money in the walls like they did on Breaking Bad or opening up gambling and strip clubs. And frankly, um, casinos all around this country, 
are coming under immense pressure too, because they have requirements, not bank secrecy, but, you know, reporting and monitoring, you know, the casinos. And in fact, you know, I think a couple large operations in Vegas, they've been fined by the treasury as well for money laundering. This is uh, great, great. I'm so glad you took some time out to talk to us. I know it's finals week everywhere, so we appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll have you back when this whole thing blows up yes. some more. Yes, thank, thank you, you very thank much. Bye bye. Thank you. All right, in a minute, we will be discussing the Parker's lawsuit with the Beach family and these accusations against a media outlet. But first, Seton, we need to talk about founders. Looking for the perfect home for you and your family? Nervous about monthly payments? Don't be. With a mortgage from Founders Federal Credit Union, you'll get low rates, up to 90% financing, and pay no private mortgage insurance. And for a limited time only, receive their discounted interest rate without paying the 1% fee. Nice. With many loan options to choose from, like first-time homebuyer, military mortgage, and 15, 20, and 30-year fixed rate options, as well as various adjustable rate options, you can choose the mortgage that fits your lifestyle and your budget. Relax with the mortgage from Founders Federal Credit Union. Meet with one of the experienced mortgage loan officers at any of their more than 30 locations or apply now at foundersfcu.com backslash mortgage. Founders is a federally insured by NCUA and is an equal housing lender. Additional terms and conditions apply. Not all loan types are eligible for promotional interest rates. Promotion ends on February 28, 2022. Institution NMLS ID number 410646. One of the other things we want to talk about, Seton, is the controversy and lawsuits surrounding Parker's, which is the package store, the convenience store, where Mallory and Paul and the gang got the liquor from and the alcohol before the boat crash. And Tinsley, Mark Tinsley, who is the attorney for the Mallory Beach family, the lawsuit and the battle that's going on between them and the release of confidential material. Try to walk us through this. Right. So Tinsley, the attorney representing the Beach family, has requested sanctions against Parker. And there was supposed to be a hearing on December 10th. That has now been postponed. But in this, there were two things. One, they say that there was a fake social media posts that were intended to harass and emotionally harm the Beach family, and they're asking for sanctions about that. Tinsley saying that either Greg Parker or Parkers set up some fake social medias to attack the Beach family or discredit them. That's saying? Well, they said harass and emotionally okay. harm them. All right. So it's Parker behind that, they think. That's they said they a social media campaign. That's okay. unusual. I mean, I'm a member of all the different sleuth groups, and you do see, you know, some strange stuff. So I don't know if, if this was part of those. I mean, you always kind of distrust somebody when they don't really have a real profile picture, mm -hmm. and you click on them, and it just doesn't necessarily seem like a real person. So, mm. and a lot of people posting some crazy stuff. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's possible that, that this was part of that. I, I don't know, but, Right, you know. we don't know, and it's going to be hard to prove, I would think. What What is the other okay, big thing? So then there, it talks about this mediation video. It was leaked to a New York-based reporter, Vicki Ward, who was working on a documentary. And in this video, they include some pictures of Mallory Beach body after she was found. So obviously, this is very salacious. The video was in a trailer, and it was put out there 
Miss Ward says that that was an accident. It right. wasn't supposed to be uh, out there. Let me tell you uh, what she said. As I've already stated, I've never bought any materials for use in a proposed documentary about the Murdochs, nor have I ever met or spoken to Greg Parker or his lawyers, nor did I publish, promote, or create the video that was wrongly described as a, quote, trailer, and which contained very sensitive photographic images, as reported by Fitz News. The video issue was created and intended for internal use by the production company I am working with. It was for internal development purposes only, and supposed to have been seen by approximately 10 people. I was horrified as everyone else to learn that Fitznews had published it. Had the journalist there bothered to contact me, she would have discovered that the video was publicly accessible entirely by error. Unfortunately, an outside contractor at the production company inadvertently uploaded the internal video to an open, as opposed to private, Vimeo site. As soon as this was discovered, unfortunately after Fitznews published it, not before, immediate action was taken to remove access to the video. I'm appalled by Fitznews' publication of the video. A simple phone call would have ensured that the video uploaded in error, completely without my knowledge or involvement, was taken down. I am deep, deeply upset for the Beach family, as with all of my investigative reporting activities. I am devoted to finding and telling the truth. Any suggestion that I would ever seek to exploit a tragedy is utterly false and disgusting. The response by Fitznews was that they did not publish it, but I honestly, I think it's kind of a play with words, because they did publish a link. So they published a link to this Vimeo site. And what Vicki Ward is saying, you could have just called me, I would have taken it down, and no one would have been the wiser. Fitznews is saying it was up for two weeks. All we did was do a link just so people could get the idea. And I'm saying to you, Fitznews, that was classless. You did not need to show a link. You can end to wind it with your little words about, oh, we, uh, you know, we didn't really print it. We just gave a link. Well, you told everybody where to find it. Uh, you could have easily said that there's pictures were out there. You didn't have to get specific. You opened those pictures of Mallory up to a whole bunch of people who would have never, ever seen it. So shame on you. Well, it's, it's, it's very understandable why the Beach family would be upset. If it was my child, I would, I would be horrified and upset by those pictures as well. Just so I'm clear, Fitznews has done a lot of great things, I'm sure, in the reporting. Made a bad call on this, but Vicki Ward has to take the most responsibility, and she is, I guess, even though saying it was a mistake, by even putting those out there. Right. So Parker's has actually responded, and in their response, they write that they believe that the confidential mediation video was released to a journalist from Fitznews, Mandy Matney, because there were some quotes from Renee Beach that were taken verbatim, including pauses from the mediation video. So Tinsley says that he did provide a quote to Mandy Matney, but did not release the mediation video to her. And this is possible. Also, Renee Beach in her deposition said that she has never spoken directly to Mandy Matney and the information would have had to come from her attorney. And that should have been made clear. Right. In Parker's response, they say that the extent that the materials were disclosed, the plaintiffs waived confidentiality by placing them in public domain. Tinsley released stuff. That's what Parker says. That makes it more like an open deal. Because yes. you're releasing stuff anyway, you can't pick and choose, I guess is what they're saying. I think that's what they're saying. You, you, you were giving reporters information. We gave reporters information. What do you get? I don't know the legality of that. We also need to note that Vicki Ward is claiming journalistic shield, which Tinsley says is not accurate because she told him where she received the documents, which was from Parker's. So the shield has been broken, I guess. That's, that's what Tinsley says. Okay. All right. We also have news. Another attorney has entered the fray representing 
one of Alec Murdoch's alleged victims of the insurance scam and scheme, talk to me about this latest attorney. So Justin Bamberg is planning to file a lawsuit against PMPED on behalf of his client, Johnny Bush. So Johnny Bush is the one, I think we've talked about this before, where Alec allegedly paid $100,000 for an accident reconstruction that never happened. And instead, the money went to Forge, which was this fake account that Alec allegedly set up. So in the Island Packet article, he has some pretty strong statements, very bland-esque. He says, somebody allowed Alex to do that. Someone left the front door unlocked. He also says, either somebody knew or management at the firm was asleep at the wheel. So that's pretty strong accusation by Pretty strong. Bamberg. Yes. PMPD responds, we operate honestly and ethically. We've taken steps to ensure that clients are made whole and that he's already been reimbursed the money from... PMPED. Um, I also wondered, I just had a question about this when I was reading it, and I don't know the answer to it, so I'm going to look into it, is what happened to the attorney's fees? Did they get the attorney's fees back or? That's a good question. Yeah. The attorney fees, you mean the PMPED had? Right, that Alec received. I mean, obviously, they most likely took a third in attorney's fees. Did they also reimburse the the clients the attorney's fees? Do not know that. Good question. It also says in the article that PMPED has reimbursed three clients, which was his client, Jinx, which we talked about in our last episode. He was the family friend. And Taylor, I believe that is the car accident where the mother lost her daughter. Her daughter. Drunken driving accident. So the other big news that has happened is the acting U.S. attorney for South Carolina, Rhett D. Hart, is stepping down. And he was investigating the financial crimes of Alec Murdoch. So I don't know how this will impact that investigation. Uh, We know that Joe Biden will announce a new U.S. attorney for South Carolina. We are not going to assume that things will go in favor of Alec Murdoch when this happens. We assume that attorney generals are basically apolitical. They're not supposed to be charging people based on what party they're from. It does come into play that this will probably be a Democrat that is appointed. And Dick Harpootlian, who is Alec Murdoch's attorney, was a bigwig. He was the chair of South Carolina Democratic Party for five years at 1.98 to 2003, then again, 2011 to 2013. And his wife, Jamie Harpootlian, is in line to be appointed an ambassador, is that right? She, no, she was appointed this week. Oh, she so is She is the uh, ambassador for the Republic of Slovenia. So there's that Biden connection. So everybody's going to be keeping their eyes on this case to make sure that because of this perceived connection between Alec Murdoch's attorneys, the Harputlians, and President Joe Biden, will the appointee of the South Carolina U.S. District Attorney be fair? and honest with this as this case plays out. Well, and let's face it, Alec would much rather be in a nice, cushy federal prison. So if you want to reach out to us, do you have comments? How do they do it? Seton! You can reach us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, or our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. We will talk soon. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. 
and me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.